Good Monday. This is Ozarks at Large for July 11th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today, we access archives from the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History to learn more about a deadly plane crash in Little Rock more than 20 years ago. We'll hear survivor accounts from that June night and from now. That's in about 12 minutes. First, JobPath, a federal and state-funded program, comprehensively assists high school students and young adults with disabilities, ages 16 to 24, to prepare for the workforce. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich introduces us to a former JobPath client who this summer is working part-time at KUAF and also talks with Northwest Arkansas's JobPath manager to learn more about how the program works. Part-time front desk receptionist Jared Friend rises from his chair, unfolds his walking cane, and slowly makes his way to the front door. He's blind. Friend greets guests who come to be interviewed by station news reporters, visitors, and collects daily mail from the postal carrier. He also takes phone calls, sorts email and postal mail using an app on his smartphone. Here's how I'll scan the front of an envelope. Hold steady. Processing. The program that's speaking is called VoiceOver which will speak the screen, and the app is seeing AI, which will give me prompts on where to move the camera. Scan result, heading. Single Parent Scholarship Fund, Northwest Arkansas, 2601 SWD Saint, Bentonville. Promotional mail from a local nonprofit. Friend who recently turned 20 has been working at KUAF for about eight weeks now. The Pea Ridge native lives with his family in Fayetteville. They provide him rides to and from work. My condition, which is a, is a pretty rare condition of uh, uh, Lieber's congenital amaurosis. Lieber congenital amaurosis is an eye disorder that causes severe vision loss at birth. It occurs in two to three out of every 100,000 newborns. I've never known what it's like to see colors or shapes or anything. I can only, I only have light perception, so I can only perceive the difference between bright lights and darkness and stuff, but I can't actually, I don't have any actual usable vision. In public school, Friend received assistance from a vision specialist who at first provided books in Braille, he says, a system of touch reading and writing for blind people in which raised groups of dots represent certain letters of the alphabet. Later, Friend learned how to use adaptive technology, for example, screen readers on smartphones. As he approached his final years of high school, Friend was mapping out his future, at first considering computer science. I also became interested in like audio editing, so it seemed like a good option for me would be like sound engineering. And um, you know, when I was told that I'd be a great like radio person or a great like audio like sound engineer for people, I was. That made so much sense because I, I use my hearing a lot since I can't see. Like I like how I use my phone and how I use the uh, computers and stuff, which is all dependent on hearing. Like every, most of what I do is dependent on hearing. For now, Friend is learning to navigate front desk management, but hopes to intern or hire on with a sound engineering firm. Friend credits his high school mentor, Daniel Estes, a special education paraprofessional at Fayetteville Public Schools, for encouraging him to apply to KUAF. This was after Friend graduating from a program called JobPath, a job placement agency which assists high school students and young adults to prepare for the workforce. His first work experience while training with JobPath was serving as a front desk helper fielding calls, and making classroom deliveries at McNair Middle School in Fayetteville. Well, I did it as a, what they, what some people call a super senior, meaning that, like, kids with special needs after they graduate can come back for an extra year or two, and, and that's how I got to the job bath program with everyone else. Services available through JobPath include vocational counseling, pre-employment classes, job placement, on-the-job training, summer internships for students, 
career assessment and planning, rehab technology, benefits counseling, transportation, everything needed to ensure long-term success, says Laura Smith. She's community employment manager for Friendship Community Care, headquartered in Russellville, which empowers youth and young adults with disabilities towards careers. Smith also manages the Job Path program in Northwest Arkansas. For Job Path, our mission is to find barriers for employment and provide the training and support that these individuals need to have supported employment, have gainful employment, and to fulfill their desires to be productive members out in society. Job Path enrolls around 100 students annually in the program, juniors and seniors, for a total of over 500 over the past five years. Our high school program is called Pre-Employment Transition Services, and that is for juniors and seniors in high school who have an identified disability. So they're served with an IEP, an Individualized Education Plan, or a 504. And that is identified and served by the school districts. Um, so those students are typically in special education classes or receive speech therapy, occupational therapy, those kind of things, um, those special services through the district. So those students are identified who may need a little bit of help in identifying what they're interested in doing after school, um, students who may not necessarily be aware of their career options, um, those teachers identify them and gear them to our program um, or make them aware of our program. And then the student applies to be a part of the program through Arkansas Rehabilitation Services. We partner and vendor with them. Um, and once they're signed up with that, then we provide our classes uh, during the school year. And enrollment cost? Students who are enrolled in our program, it's 100% free to them. There's absolutely no charge for those services through Arkansas Rehabilitation or through Friendship. Enrollment can last up to four semesters with certain students landing jobs. This year, um, I know of five of our students in Northwest Arkansas who were offered employment with the internships that they started at during our program as a paid employee. And that's really exciting for us is having those students identify what they really enjoy, finding internships that are meaningful to them and lead to those real employment opportunities where they're being paid and working and fulfilling those dreams that they have. JobPath seeks employers and businesses looking to partner up. So we have a variety of work opportunities. We have students who are working in restaurants. We have students in grocery stores. Um, we have students at small businesses in the area. Um, even local artisans um, have some of our interns working with them, learning that craft that they're that they're doing. Um, and we even have some students at libraries in the area helping out as well. And after graduation, services remain available for these young adults. Once they graduate, they can apply for services through Arkansas Rehabilitation Services. At that point, Arkansas Rehabilitation Services would um, help them identify a vendor in the area that suits their needs the best. And at that point, then they can be referred to us for adult-supported employment. However, many young adults with disabilities in our society may not be aware that higher education also offers support programs. Some are free, some tuition-based. And similar to attending college, job path enrollees must qualify for entry, fully participate, and comply with all rules and regulations. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Supporters of a proposed constitutional amendment that would legalize recreational marijuana in Arkansas turned in their petition signatures Friday. The group Responsible Growth Arkansas submitted the signatures to the Secretary of State's office to place the initiative on the November ballot. Steve Lancaster, an attorney for the group, says he believes there's enough support in Arkansas to pass the amendment. We've had an amazing outpouring of support from all across the state. We've had signatures and Arkansans from every county um, have signed our petition. Uh, so we're extremely gratified by that. 
Lancaster says the group gathered over 193,000 signatures, more than double the roughly 89,000 signatures required to get on the ballot. He says that should be more than enough, even if some signatures are ultimately thrown out. And we recognize that, you know, there will be duplicates. There will be some things where people have not uh, put the correct information or or maybe they weren't even registered to vote. Uh, But uh, even with that, we believe that the cushion that we have will have uh, more than more than plenty to to qualify. The proposal would legalize recreational cannabis use for Arkansans over 21 years of age and would prohibit advertising and packaging designed to appeal to children. It would also expand the number of marijuana dispensaries and cultivators in the state and would divert tax revenue to drug courts and health care research. President Joe Biden late last week signed an executive order in response to the U.S. Supreme Court's reversal late last month of Roe v. Wade. The executive order does not restore nationwide access to abortion, but the president says he aims to protect reproductive health for teens and women across the country by maintaining and expanding access to medication abortion and emergency contraception, protecting patient privacy, and increasing public education. In an email to Ozarks at Large, Great Plains Planned Parenthood, which provides reproductive health services to teens and women in Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Kansas, stated its support of the Biden administration's executive order. The organization recently established the Center for Abortion and Reproductive Equity, or CARE. CARE partners are now helping patients navigate safe access to surgical and medical abortions in states where it remains legal while providing comprehensive reproductive health care resources. President Biden's executive order also establishes an interagency task force on reproductive health care access. In addition, it directs the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to report back to the Biden administration about any impacts made as a result of the order. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is taking exception to some of the comments the president made at the ceremony regarding the executive order. The governor tweeted that he thinks the president's remarks about the Supreme Court and what the governor calls a disrespect for states further divides the country. Governor Hutchinson tweeted the Arkansas trigger law does not have an impact on contraception, including IUDs and Plan B, or have an impact on treatment for an ectopic pregnancy. And entertainment trade magazines are reporting a movie scheduled to be filmed in Arkansas will now shift to North Carolina as a response to Arkansas's trigger law banning most abortions. The movie, an adaptation of the play Eric LaRue, will be directed by Michael Shannon, an actor known for his roles in TV shows like Boardwalk Empire and Fahrenheit 451, as well as movies like Mud and Loving. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy. Featuring the nation's founding documents in conversation with American art, including a rare original print of the U.S. Constitution, opening July 2nd. Free tickets at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Dog Party USA, offering supervised boarding and daycare in an off-leash environment for dogs of all sizes. Dog Party follows strict vaccine requirements and COVID guidelines for a safe environment. More information available at dogpartyusa.com. The expansion of the Bentonville Public Library is getting boost from contributions announced this month. Denton and Kathy Sealhan are committing $500,000 for an expanded children's story time space, and Doug and Shelley McMillan are contributing $100,000 for an expanded Walmart community room. These and additional recent contributions bring the library's capital campaign total to almost $8 million. Another $4.5 million from the city's bond funds added toward the ultimate $16.75 million project. That project is currently in the design phase. The Carlos Santana concert scheduled for July 12th at the Walmart Amp is being postponed out of an abundance of caution after the guitarist was briefly hospitalized for heat exhaustion and dehydration. A press release from the artist indicates he's doing well and is anxious to return to the stage. No new date for the concert in Rogers has yet been set. And NPR's live coverage of the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol continues tomorrow. We'll carry that coverage on KUAF 91.3 beginning at noon. You can also listen at KUAF.com and by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. Yeah, we just uh, crashed down good. 
This is Ozarks at Large. Explain that sound that you just heard in a moment. With me is Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Welcome back, Randy. Hey, thank you, Kyle. We're going to use archives and some new material to, again, go back to something that happened in Arkansas's past. What is our subject this week? Well, uh, we got a new batch in last week from the Media Preserve that's been digitizing. And I came across a story I remember well Um from June 1st of 1999, uh, American Airlines 1420 from Dallas to Little Rock uh, flew in on a very stormy night and uh, ran off the runway, crashed, had a crash landing, almost went into the Arkansas River. It was there on the banks. Mm. I think it was partially in. But uh, I remember getting a call about 11 o'clock that night, and um, there had been, you know, the crash. There were 139 passengers on board, and in the end, um, 11 were killed and 83 were treated, and that includes from the six uh, crew, crew members. members, and the pilot, as a matter of fact, was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, you want to listen to a little more of the radio traffic at it's starting to unfold, and you you realize what exactly has happened. And I remember this radio dispatcher. I used to talk to her all the time when I was on the assignment desk. And you can tell from the sound of her voice, um, an alert three. Alert one means there's a, a plane in trouble. Okay. Uh, it's still in the air. And alert two means there's going to be a... a you know, a possible problem with the landing and an alert three Hmm. means it's crashed. So this is what you hear developing over radio traffic. Alert three, number one airport road. Number one airport road on the airport grounds. Threads in four, six, 13, rescue one, 744. It's going to be in the river. The airplane is in the river on fire. Alert 3. Alert 3 at number 1 Airport Road. It's going to be in the river on fire for engine 4, 6, engine 13, rescue 1, 744, timeout 008. 42 Central. You do have MAMS on the way. Dominate all the units. They can, they can muster together. Also, their supervisor. 44, uh, let me check with the... That's harrowing to listen to. I'm always amazed at how uh, an operator, a 911 or a dispatcher, can have urgency, yet still Keep explain it what's happening. Right. And right. you've and got she knew, sound coming. She said alert three. She knew something bad, very bad, had happened. Yeah. So you were on. You remember this because you were working that night. Right. Right. Um, I was at home when I got the call right about 11 and was immediately in the car and at the station. I didn't live that far from the station. And, uh, of course, we were on live uh, continually throughout the night. We had crews there live. And, um, well, one of the reporters, uh, Justin Acri, um, who's now with the Buzz radio station, Uh, general manager, but he was one of the reporters on the scene um, earlier in the morning and then throughout the day. And um, here's a portion of Justin Acre's report uh, from the news that day. Concerns about the weather kept American Airlines Flight 1420 on the ground in Dallas rather than allowing it to make its scheduled departure for Little Rock. It had originally been slated to land at Little Rock National Airport at 941 Tuesday night. That arrival time was pushed back two hours. When the plane finally got to Adams Field, passengers and flight crews braced for a bumpy landing in stormy conditions. But no one could have expected just how bad the result would be. It was a stormy night, had been. Oh, it was really bad. We had been on the air, uh, as a matter of fact, with Ned Permy, who was our chief meteorologist, and it was severe weather. 
that he that we were reporting on. So we had people there at the station uh, after the 10 o'clock news because of the mm-hmm. weather. And then this uh, piled on. And so we brought even more people in. And, and of course, initially, uh, weather was the focus of what had happened. But throughout all of this, uh, survivors were taken to the IMAX theater. It was uh, it was aerospace museum. Right. It was right nearby the airport, actually right across the street. They brought them in on buses to meet with their family members who had been, you know, at the terminal waiting for them to land. And then, of course, tragedy happened. But um, about 2 o'clock in the morning is when they brought these buses in. And um, we, of course, had a live uh, reporter there, and um, she grabbed the first person who came off the bus, and um, this was a 19-year-old kid, and this is what he had to say. The, the plane was coming in real fast, and it hit, it hit the runway. It was storming real bad, lightning all around. And when we hit the runway, we thought, you know, okay, we're on the ground. And then it just we just kept on going, you know. And he, he tried to throw, I guess he threw the thrusters on, like trying to slow us down. But he did it two or three times, and we just went off. And then all I heard was the stewardess just scream out, brace yourself. And next thing you know, the uh, front of the airplane was just shaking back and forth, like in front of me. And there's think there's luggage flying all around the cabin and uh then we stopped and there was flames i could see the flames and uh we just tried to get out the emergency door but it, it wouldn't open we were kicking it and pulling it and finally <clears throat> just a little bit of it opened at the top just enough to where we could squeeze one person at a time out of the top and all the t- all this time the flames were just coming at us just burning closer and closer and uh, some people tried to go out the back but it, there was just a hole and there's a lot of flames back there so they came back the other way and there's just a lot of panic and screaming going on inside the airplane. You also mentioned that you were in pretty deep water. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <clears throat> we went off the end of the runway which is I don't know how many yards from the river but obviously it had been raining a lot and um, when we went off the side it just uh, when I got out it was wet but there was smoke just all around me and I couldn't breathe. I just I just couldn't breathe at all. So finally, I got a hold of the stewardess, and she was going crazy. And so I drug her, I drug her out further away from the plane. And as we got further, it just got deeper and deeper and deeper. She couldn't swim, so I had to pretty much carry her through the water across this, I don't know, like half a creek, I guess, but it was just like a pond of water, just up to at least my chest. And uh, I came back, and <clears throat> me and a buddy of mine, we just were dragging people away from the plane, trying to get them away from the airplane, because. I mean, we, we didn't know if it was going to blow or anything. We didn't know. I didn't know what the deal was. Chilling to listen. I mean, yes, you've crashed. Um, that this is a nineteen-year-old. Yeah, and I he's mean, um, but just everything, not just the crash, but then you're in water. And who was this? Well, uh, it ends up we know him, uh, Barrett Baber, who uh, from Fayetteville, taught in the Fayetteville school system for a bit. Yes. And was a finalist in NBC's The Voice. Yeah. So, uh, he's, he's a well-known, uh, singer and entertainer now, but I wanted to know what, um, he remembered and what he felt after, you know, more than two decades. And so i I found him in uh, Nashville. We've kept up over the years, and um, this is what he had to say. You know, the first thing I did was was try to open the the exit door across from where I was sitting uh, near the back of the airplane, and and realizing it was damaged, and and we weren't going to be able to get it open. And so, uh, and then I remember kind of moving towards the the wing exits to try to get out that way, and and before I could get there. Um, me and the several people that were around me, we started moving that direction before we could get there. You know, a wall of really thick white smoke started to sort of just engulf every row ahead of us. And and then and the last thing I remember seeing, like the shadow of a person darting out of the wing exit and then the smoke overtaking that part of the plane. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I don't know how far away that is from where I am and how many rows it was away from where I was. So, I, you know, and we turned, we, all of us in the back of the airplane turned around and started moving back towards the back of the airplane away from the smoke. 
and I um, and then I remember looking up at the top of the fuselage right above where the exit door was in the back of the airplane that we had tried to open and noticing uh, that I could see lightning outside. Um, the storm was raging outside and, and it was lightning, you know, every half second it seemed like the, the sky was lighting up. I remember seeing that lightning and seeing, being able to see the sky from inside the airplane. It's amazing that you reach out to him, that he talked to you, and his story continues. Well, yes, and I mean, it was very vivid uh, memory for him after all this time. I guess it would be, of course, it was a life-changing event, and he was uh, very heroic. I mean, for a kid, he was helping people off the plane. And then I had, a, I remember having the thought, I'm going to jump out of this. I'm going to get out of this airplane, turn around, and kick that door open so that more people could get out. And when I, I took like two hops on a seat and dove headfirst out of that, uh, out of that little hole in the fuselage, and uh, and splashed down into water. I had no idea where we were, you know, or how close we were to the Arkansas River, even, or, or that the airport even ran that close to the Arkansas River, and. I remember getting out of the airplane and being, you know, standing up and being in waist deep water and then realizing that the bottom of that door was right about head height for me. And I'm, I'm six, five. So I, there's no way I could widen that hole anymore by kicking it or punching it. And several more people came out, you know, flew out of that hole and I caught a couple of them. And, you know, then we just started working our way away from the airplane. Um, and, and working our way kind of as far away from it as possible and then sort of starting to see other people getting out and that who had already gotten out. And then basically from that point forward, it was just about, you know, where are my friends, where, where are the people that I was on this plane with, you know, who's, who's all right, who's not all right, who's hurt. And it's Barrett Baber, um, who was on this um, airplane crash in, in age 19 in Little Rock. Um, and, and it's horrific, obviously. God forbid any of us are ever in a situation like this. But it's not just the impact. It's not just the crash. It's where they are. They're, it continues. Well, they ran off the runway, right? And the Arkansas River is right at the end of the runway. And so they were partially in the river. Mm. So, you know, he gets out of the plane – but, you know, the ordeal isn't over yet. Frankly, Randy, it was just like it was a lot, a little bit more scary outside of the airplane for about three or four minutes than it was inside just because of how powerful the storm was and how windy it was. And, and it began to hail and uh, it hailed on us for a minute or two. And, um, and it's just lightning and thunder. And it was like, I mean, it was something out of a movie, man, just uh, being kind of down in in the marsh of the Arkansas river, you know, trying to find high ground and, and trying to put my eyes on people that I, that was on that trip with. And, um, and I just, and then, and then starting to hear the sounds of, of people reacting to what had just happened to them, you know, um, people crying and screaming and, um, that kind of thing. So it was a, you know, it was scary. And, 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 you know, all of a sudden then you start seeing, you know, ambulance lights and fire truck lights and, I remember looking back at that at the airplane as it was, you know, engulfing in flames and thinking to myself, wow, like did I can't did that really just happen? You know, almost as if a hard to believe moment when you look back at an airplane you were just riding on that's now fully engulfed in flames and and really checking myself and understanding, wow, I, I came out of that with I'm not hurt, you know, I'm not hurt at all. And this happened in nineteen ninety nine, correct? June first, okay. yes. Um, and, of course, you have live coverage. All the networks have come in. Sure. There, there are— Eleven fatalities. Yes. Scores of injuries. And the story continues past those initial hours. Well, of course, we follow it every day because there are developments daily. They're finding out what has happened. The National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, has come in, and they're investigating and— uh, Pamela Smith, one of KTV's reporters, um, covered that story, you know, for days. So here's a portion of her report the next day on the NTSB uh, investigation. And the other person you hear from in this report is uh, an NTSB spokesman named George Black. 
Investigators will not say that weather solely was responsible for the accident, but they are concerned about the strong gusting winds and a possible power outage at the time of the landing. At this afternoon's briefing, NTSB officials did say it is ultimately the pilot's decision whether to land after getting information from the tower. So one question now is what did the pilot know about the weather conditions? We don't know enough to answer that question yet. We don't know what he knew. We don't know what information he had. Uh, we're, we're still working. We'll get radar information and we'll get, uh, we'll get what information was transmitted to him by air traffic control. So air traffic control didn't transmit the fact that there was bad weather in Little Rock? We don't know whether they did or not. The captain of the aircraft who died in the crash had logged 9,600 hours with American Airlines and had been flying since 1979. As for the plane, it underwent field maintenance six weeks ago and had a major overhaul check back in January. I have to ask you because, um, you know, when, when, when the FAA and NTSB, when they get involved with an investigation, it isn't, they've got to look at the site, they've got to look at the, the remains of the aircraft. So they don't move it away right away. No, they don't. They they left it there. They had to check, um, you know, all of the terrain, all the area right. around it. But then they needed to get it to a place um, and pretty much reassemble it and and uh, figure out what the exact cause was of the crash. So it was almost a week later that. They took all these parts, some of them were huge, that they had to use cranes, but they uh, took them from the banks of the Arkansas River uh, to an area of the airport where they could uh, contain everything in a fairly sterile, you know, uh, condition or mm -hmm. location. And um, that's when uh, another portion of the uh, investigation Picks up. First, a huge chunk of the burned out midsection from flight 1420, followed by the tail of the plane, rolled into a hangar at Central Flying Service for further investigation. NTSB officials will examine inside and out what's left of the craft to determine if weather, pilot error, mechanical trouble, or a combination are to blame. You would be surprised what we learned three or four or five, six months into an investigation, we uncover something that was pivotal. And it was in an area where we didn't think we would get it. Daylight gives investigators a better look at the enormous task at hand. They will examine the on-flight computers stored at the front of the plane. Information from them, the voice recorder, and survivors' accounts of what happened, including the co-pilot, will provide more clues. And now we move ahead a little bit more. Well, this is the next year. Uh, early in the next year, uh, the NTSB held hearings. And they had the co-pilot, they had American Airlines uh, folks, particularly um, a Captain Eric Lewis from American Airlines. And he testified, they, the, the committee wanted to hear a lot about the crosswinds and the weather conditions because that had been discussed since the beginning. And um, so here's a portion of that hearing where they talked to this Captain Eric Lewis about certain procedures that American Airlines have and what pilots need to do when they're in this situation. How are your pilots to, uh, trained to determine what the crosswind is and if it exceeds the company limitations? The, uh, the crosswind uh, training is introduced uh, in the ground school. Uh, we have a day primarily dedicated to performance training that is familiarity with our performance manual. Uh, the performance manual has a chart, uh, a, it looks like a grid where you can determine the number of degrees off the runway and the amount of the crosswind or the amount of the wind velocity and then resolve that into a headwind and crosswind component. Okay, if, if a pilot's flying like uh, these pilots were doing and they get a uh, crosswind, would you expect them to take this chart out and look at it or? Uh, if they want to be very, very precise about it, yes, I would. Uh, there are uh, some general rules of thumb uh, that you can use to approximate the crosswind component. Earlier we had heard from Justin Acri, and he is uh, the KATV reporter that covered these hearings. And so I wanted to talk to him 
and got a hold of him, and this is what he recalls. The testimony of the co-pilot, who was you know, quite a bit younger and less experienced than the, than the, uh, the pilot, and Michael Oriel was his name. Richard Bushman was the pilot who ended up dying in the crash. And his, you know, his testimony was, you know, pretty dramatic. It was a long work day for those guys. They were nearing the end of their hours. And if you go back and look through the NTSB report, that's part of what they cited as a concerning thing. And going forward, that they needed to be more cognizant of not pushing pilots to the limit. You know, there were obviously some some errors according to the NTSB that were made by the pilots, and you know, part of that they felt like was due to fatigue, and part of it was, you know. Um, due to some of the stress of dealing with the severe weather that they were trying to land through. And when you go back and read the exchanges that were, you know, gathered from the black box, it's pretty remarkable. You know, it was obviously not a great situation, and there were many times where the, the co-pilots, you know, telling them, hey, I see the runway, do you see it? And the, and the pilot didn't see it, you know, so Bushman couldn't see it, and eventually they, they did. And then, you know, there's been a, a number of things that have been cited in the report about, you know, uh, actions that they didn't take, so the auto braking system not being utilized, um, and then when they did brake manually, they did it after, I think, maybe seven seconds after they had touched ground. Um, the spoilers was another big storyline. And so they apparently could be set to auto. They weren't. And then they weren't manually uh, utilized once they landed as well. Um, and then, of course, the crosswind factor was a big issue, too, or at least concerning factor. And, again, I don't know how much that had to do with it. Certainly, you're dealing with a wet runway and everything uh, helps. But, you know like every other situation where there's a comedy of errors it's you know doesn't usually end up being very funny and that was the situation here it was a you know, horrific deal and uh, probably you know something that could have been avoided i wanted to go back uh to barrett um, yeah it, it was a fascinating conversation with him and you know i hadn't talked to him in several years since he was on the voice he's you know like i said living in nashville he's a songwriter writing music and um anyway he had just some sort of final thoughts about, you know, how, well, I asked him, you know, do you still think about this more than two decades later? I think about it sometimes, think about what a gift it is, you know, to be alive right now and to, and to have what I have, to have the career that I have, to have, have experienced the things that I've experienced and, and being a dad and being a husband and all those things, how close I came to not being able to do any of that. And, um, and so, I think now more than anything, I, I view it with a sense of gratitude um, that, you know, I was able to survive that and, and not allow it to really affect me uh, internally and mentally, um, you know, the rest of my life. Barrett Baber, now, some 22 years after. Married. That, uh, father. Father, yeah. yep. Um, this, was, this was a very interesting one, Randy. Thank you so much. Well, I, you know, just came across it with a, with a new batch and, and thought uh, that it was uh, important to remember. These archives and so many others can be found at the website for the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. The reason you can do these archives? Well, it was a gift from Barbara Tyson and the Tyson Foods Foundation. They made it all possible. All right. You'll be back next week? Yes. I'll Thank see you then. Thank you, Randy. The Jones Center in downtown Springdale presents the Worst Case Scenario Survival Experience, an interactive exhibition for kids and families that put survival skills to the test. Activities include a quicksand ball pit, climbing a wall, picking a lock, and more. Tickets at thejonescenter.net. The Momentary in Bentonville presents the Live on the Green concert series, featuring acclaimed artists including Japanese Breakfast, The War on Drugs, Lao Love It, and more. Held on the Momentary Green, these outdoor concerts bring together musical acts of past decades and today. Line up tickets and more at themomentary.org. This is Ozarks at Large. There are all kinds of migration. Monarch butterflies, geese, and zebras all migrate. So do songs across time and geography. The music ensemble Blue Thread celebrates the migration of songs, and this week the musicians will perform songs that combine centuries-old Hindustani and Carnatic classical and folk traditions with Portuguese, Sephardic, Celtic, and American traditions. Recently, the co-founders of Blue Thread, flutist Nicola Radon and vocalist Christy Cat. Join me for a conversation. Nicola in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, Christy on Zoom from Boston. Also with us in the studio was violinist Kartik Balachandran. Nicola and Kartik both teach at the University of Arkansas. Nicola, 
Not surprisingly, as part of the faculty in the music department, Kardec is an associate professor of biomedical engineering. In fact, Nicholas says they arrived at the U of A the same year. So we didn't know each other for, for all these years, and I wish I knew back then. But uh, and, and uh, he's really great violinist, and I'm so glad that we can have uh, this kind of conversation between the um, the songs that we explore in the uh, uh, from the Western storytelling style in medieval sound with uh, these uh, with the vragas and. Uh, a uh, um, beautiful sound of the of the traditional playing, classical uh, um, playing of Carnatic music as well as the Hindustani. Well, then actually I asked, look for a singer, and then I found another uh, 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 very beautiful voice uh, singer. Uh, her name is Priya Ram, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, she. Uh, also uh, is a scientist, uh, and <laughs> apparently we have a scientist and great musician uh, here, uh, and that's that's wonderful. Well, um, she's going to be part of this series, uh, uh, seri- uh, and uh, as well we have a santosh on, on the yeah, percussionist, yes. percussionist uh, instrument. The same story like we just met uh, through the Rave. Uh, uh, culture center. Christy Kat, you're joining us in Boston. Are you a scientist? Let me just. No, I okay. am not. A, I'm a singer and a <laughs> musician. Just wanted to make sure you're. Well, and Kartik, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here in a minute, but I want to ask um, uh, both of you co invitors or co um, establishers kind of the origin of Blue Thread and, and, and the idea, the mission. I guess, Christy, of, of bringing music to people and bringing musicians together. Well, uh, Nicola and I have known each other for a long time. We met in Boston, and we uh, Nicola had a group there called Balmus, and I sang with that group, and then I invited him to s- different uh, productions I was involved in, and then he left, which I was so sad about. He, he took off for Arkansas, but we kept in touch, and we, we kept me, working on music together. And then uh, I was invited to go to Portugal to do um, a series of concerts, and um, the musicians that I was supposed to go with couldn't uh, make their schedules work, and so I, they said, well, we won't just come anyway. And I thought, well, who can I call <laughs> that would just drop everything and, and do this? And, it, of course, it, Nicola was the first person I thought of, and I called him. And But I remember Nicola saying, you know, we, we sh- we've been working together all these years. We have this big opportunity to go to Portugal and do this music. And let's let's really bring everything together about our work together and make something out of this that's long-lasting. And so that's kind of where Blue Thread was born, was in conversations leading up to those performances in Portugal and we were performing a lot of Portuguese songs both traditional songs and also um, these very beautiful love songs from the medieval times uh, and they're called Cantigas de Amigo songs of a friend and we were looking at their cousins their songs in uh, different parts of traditional music as well as these these medieval songs and and as we kept going with that thread and there's a few different threads but with this specific thread we found uh, more and more connections and we were even then starting to be aware of um, these connections with uh, Southeast Asian song traditions going way way back and so this was something that kept developing and we talked with different uh, experts and uh, people that were helping us shape our ideas and then started to find actual songs where we could connect um, these traditions. And that's our mission, really, is to look at shared stories and ballad migration. And so we're on this trip now looking at these relationships, um, how people have you know, it takes a lot for a song to make it to now, if you think about what had to go into remembering it, passing it, and then things change a little bit, and people travel, and they keep passing it, and then we have these threads that have made it to here, and we're going to put them together uh, and see what we come up with and present that to everybody in these concerts. I want to bring 
you in because you have now grabbed onto one of these threads right. and you'll be playing with them. What do you look forward to with these performances that'll be, you know, on consecutive nights? Yeah, so I think, um, like Christy was saying, there's that common thread of, you know, these same stories. Um, and then some of these stories are going to be coming in with the tradition that I bring, so the Indian classical music tradition. And so it's not just the, these, some of these stories also exist in the Indian tradition. Um, there's also common musicality. Um, some of the scales and the modes that are being used in, uh, you know, the songs that Nicola and uh, Christy have been working on have common themes in the Indian classical tradition as well. And so to me, it's really exciting to bring some of those Indian traditions and Indian musicality and scales and ragas, as uh, Nicola mentioned earlier, into this and to see how it can blend together and, uh, you know, create, you know, something uh, rich and uh, enjoyable for everyone. And that's, you know, that's really exciting for me. You're talking about people who grew up in different places, who, who, who have had different life experiences, who have uh, been introduced to different kinds of music. You're coming together. This is so exciting. Scientists, musicians. But then I found out before we started recording, Christy told me and Kartik told me that the first rehearsal is the day before the first performance. And I think <laughs> for a non-musician, for me, it goes from exciting to terrifying. So <laughs> how does, how will, how will it work? I mean, I know you're musicians and you have this universal language, but. I think we are all nervous, uh, and, but, but I think it's a good nervous. Yes. Uh, and uh, it will be, uh, I think everything is going to work together. We're talking about really good musicians, what we, what we're going to have, uh, and there'll be, uh, I think no issues or problems to actually that it, it, it's just uh, uh, through I think through the playing from every night everything is going to be better and better uh, so one rehearsal will be enough I've been working with Kartik so far over here and the Priya and uh, Santosh um, Christy's working with Daniela there, and I'm, I forgot to mention guitarist Cody uh, 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 Lucas, who actually is from uh, the Ozarks. Uh, so that's actually kind of really important that we have some kind of uh, over here uh, rehearsals. This is going to be the first time to meet Christy and Daniela with us. Nicola Radon, Christy Cat, and Kartik Balachandran are three musicians who will be performing as members of Blue Thread several times this week. The first concert in the All Over the Map 2 series takes place at 4 p.m. Wednesday at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Then Thursday evening at 5.30, they'll be at the Walton Museum 5 and Dime. That's on the Bentonville Square. Friday night, it's a 7.30 p.m. performance at the King Opera House in Van Buren. And then finally, Saturday evening at 6.30 at Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville. Thanks to Theater Squared for hosting KUAF this weekend for an onstage conversation between Jasper Logan, our community engagement manager, and Candrace Jones, the author of the current T2 production, Flex. That discussion, which also included cast members, took place immediately after Saturday's matinee performance. There are still seven more in-person performances of Flex tomorrow night through Sunday afternoon, and the digital stream performance is available now through theater2.org. We look forward to many more collaborations with T2 and other organizations in the future, so stay tuned. The conversation reminded us of part of our Ozarks at Large interview with Candace Jones last week that we didn't have time for on the air, but do now. The play uses high school basketball as a way to introduce us to young women in rural Arkansas, and I asked Candace, who has played and coached basketball, if writing a script is anything like drawing up a basketball play. I think there there's like you know with um playwriting um I, I i outline every play before i start writing it um and that outline is is based on a particular structure um and it's the same not you, you know it's not the same but it's very similar with basketball like you have your triangle offense or you have your flex offense or whatever mm -hmm. and you have to create um you, you have to create particular options or, yeah, particular options for, you know, how this play will go with certain constraints. You only have five players. 
so and, and those five players can do certain things and just like we writing a writing a play, you 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 can write a play as long as you want, but an audience is more than likely only going to want to see it at least two hours, no more than that. Mm-hmm. Um and so you, you have these choices that you have to make based on characters and the storylines that they have and, and so forth. Candrace Jones, playwright and author of Flex, talking with us last week. The production remains on stage at T2 through Sunday afternoon. The publication The Athletic reports former Razorback basketball player and Fort Smith native Jalen Williams is agreeing to a four-year rookie contract with the NBA's Oklahoma City Thunder. Williams was selected by the Thunder in the second round of this summer's NBA draft. A former graduate assistant coach with the Arkansas women's basketball team is the MVP of this year's WNBA All-Star Game. Kelsey Plum was awarded the honor last night after scoring 30 points to lead her team to the All-Star Game win. This comes after Plum's gold medal in last year's Tokyo Olympics in the three-on-three basketball competition. Plum plays professionally for the Las Vegas Aces. A former Razorback baseball player is a member of the American League All-Star team. Andrew Benatendi, who now plays for the Kansas City Royals, was added to the AL roster last night. The game will take place a week from tomorrow night in Los Angeles. And we note the death of actor James Caan, who has a bit of an Arkansas sports connection. Khan, perhaps best known for his roles in The Godfather and Misery, was the lead in the 1975 sports-themed science fiction film Rollerball. The film's screenplay was written by the late William Harrison, founder of the University of Arkansas's programs in creative writing and translation, who lived in Fayetteville for nearly 50 years. Harrison adapted his screenplay from his short story, Rollerball Murder. In the 1975 adaptation, James Caan was Jonathan E., a star player in a futuristic, violent sport combining motorcycles and roller derby. The short story and both movie versions use the sport to consider government control, free will, and corporate influence. William Harrison died in 2013. James Caan died last week. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, presenting the classic rock band Three Dog Night to the auditorium in Eureka Springs this Thursday, July 14th. Hits include Mama Told Me Not to Come, Joy to the World, an old-fashioned love song, and more. Tickets are available online at tickets.thundertix.com. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Green Forest. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Randy Dixon. Matthew Moore produced today's show in Studio 120. Speaking of Matthew Moore, our producer, hello, Matthew. Hi, Kyle. Uh, just talked about Rollerball a moment ago. Yes. You may, you do know this. I'm a big fan of what other people consider fringe sports. Right. But I think they're just as legit as other sports. Sports all matter. That's right. World Games taking place right now in Birmingham, Alabama. Yes. These includes include sports that are international in nature, but not part of the Olympics. That's right. So this week, I want to be giving you a quiz on some of the sports. Okay, I can't wait. We'll start with fistball. Right. Fistball is a sport. Uh, it's huge in Germany. Well, no, Germany is very good at it. I don't <laughs> know if it's huge in Germany. It is like volleyball, except what? You can't use an open hand. You have to use a fist, right? Right. But what happens in between, like in volleyball, you have to have three times. Sure. You have three opportunities to hit it before it goes back over the net. Same in fistball, but what has to happen in between each player's contact? You have to give knuckles to the player next to you. The ball has to bounce. It has to bounce. It has to bounce. It's played outside on a, on a bigger field than a volleyball court. Right. The ball has to bounce in between each time. You hit it with your fist. It's mandatory that it bounces. It is mandatory. Okay. And you can only touch it once per time on your side. Okay. That's fistball. Okay. We'll talk about canoe polo later. I can't wait. Thank you, Matthew Moore. Thank and you. thank you for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. We'll be back with you tomorrow night at 7.